Uh, my question is um, when I'm doing a body scan, my eyes sometimes follow and I have like this narration of um, what I'm doing. Like, okay, my eyes are following as I'm like trying to find sensations throughout my whole body and I'm having a narration of like, oh, that, this is, you know, this feels pleasant or, and, um, or I have a narration if I get onto a thought of something I have to do later tonight and I have this inner critic that's like, oh, get back, get back to the scanning. But I initially, like, my eyes go and everything, like following. Mm -hmm. yeah. <clears throat> so what's your question? I don't, I don't know what my question is. <laughs> is that okay? Is that normal? Is that... Yeah, what do you, what do you... When you say your eyes go, I'm not sure what you mean. No, they're shut. Yeah. But they're following. Like, if I'm like, You okay, physically wanna, feel it following? Right, or you're just I'm imagining? Starting from, like, Anipana, and then I go yeah. to, like, maybe I want to start here and feel for yeah. sensations on my shoulder and going down and what it like. Okay. So when you're, when you're doing a body scan, when one is attending to the body, what we're really working with is a felt sense. Okay. So what is a felt sense? A felt sense is the knowledge that a part of the body exists. What is it that informs you that you have a hand without looking at it, right? Um, what is it informs you that you have a big toe? What is the feeling of this? You know, it's, it's the feeling of that part of the body embodied, <laughs> okay? So it has nothing to do with contact. It has nothing to do with actually looking at it. That said, it's sometimes helpful to bring an image of that part of the body to the mind's eye as you're starting to do that. Um, that can be very useful. Um, and in terms of the narrative, if the narrative is one that's just sort of helping you guide yourself through the body, then that's perfectly skillful. I mean, you know, most people learn the body scan by listening to somebody else tell them what to do, you know, suggest what to do. So basically, that's just an internal voice, you know, reminding you that you're doing this. When that internal voice then gets caught up in some thought and you notice that, then that's mindfulness. You're noticing that thought and you're coming back to where you should be. So, um, is there ever quiet? Quiet in the body scan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, can we just be present with the feeling of the whole body sitting here right now? It, it comes and goes. Yeah, so we notice when it's coming and we notice when it's not. It's all, it's not about wanting it to be a certain way. Yeah? It's just about the way it is. Okay. So right now, the body feels this. Now it feels this. Now it's hot. Now it's cold. I have a, a client uh, who's in her late 80s. And um, she, I go to see her at her home, and she has uh, these remote controls. So one's for the air conditioning, one's for the heat, one's for the fan. And we'll be sitting there. The first few months I sat with her, she would pick up this remote control, one remote control, like every few seconds. You know, it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too hot, I need a blanket, I need a towel, whatever. You know, it was, and finally now, you know, she's able to just be present with her body, because she realizes how silly she's been this whole time, you know. 
trying to make it perfect when it's going to change in a minute. So in terms of what's going to be quiet is your relationship to that change. Okay, that's what will quiet down. Okay, so now I'm feeling this tension in my shoulder. And now I'm feeling this difficult sensation in the knee. Whatever. You know, what will quiet is the reactivity to it. And then there'll be times when the body is just the body, sitting right now with no strong sensation, pleasant or unpleasant or otherwise. Um, it may be really pleasant just to have the body still. Yeah? Okay? Thank you. Sure. Yeah. What's your name again? Oh, Will. Will? Will. Yeah. yeah. Hi. Will. Hi, thank you for leading, for teaching tonight, the meeting. Um, could you talk a little bit more about comfortable posture? <laughs> uh, I find that when I'm in a chair, I fight drowsiness. I find now when I'm sitting here, I fight drowsiness. Right now as I'm speaking, I'm feeling very comfortable. But as I sit for a while, I feel uncomfortable. My foot falls asleep. Uh, is this really a comfortable posture? Um, so if you could talk a little bit more about comfortable posture. <clears throat> right, okay. So the question about comfortable posture. Uh, so if, if one is, the first, the first trick is when you're sitting on the floor, and even when you're on a chair, you ideally want your hips higher than your knees, which they are in your case, okay? So your hips higher than your knees. The back should be upright. So you, you feel the weight uh, you know, you feel the weight below the waist being pulled toward the floor and being, uh, you know, finding a foundation on the chair or on the floor. Everything above the waist, it's as though it's being lifted from above, and there's a certain lightness to that. But you don't want your back to be rigid. So I often find it helpful to, like, really hyper-curve the back and then relax. So there's a kind of naturalness to that place. Yeah? <clears throat> People often forget about the arms, though, and the arms can often pull one down. So finding a good place for the arms, it may be helpful to put a cushion on your lap. If, if you can't find a comfortable place for the arms, just to raise them. Uh, I like to have my hands on my knees. Some people like them facing up, some people face down. Is, you know, a Zen tradition would be to have them cupped in a mudra like this, um, with, the with the thumbs touching. <coughs> um, and in terms of the feet, uh, you know, you want having your legs crossed is not ideal because that won't last very long. But having one foot either in a quarter lotus on the shin or the thigh or a Burmese style, which would be one in front of the other. If anybody's got the flexibility to do a full lotus, great, you know, because that's a very stable posture. But I don't, I can't do it, too old. Somebody, I was, I was with a, somebody this weekend who said the only people that can easily do a full lotus are three years old, you know, so. Um, but actually, you know, it's interesting. If you look at a baby's posture when they're sitting, it's just what you want to be doing. It's like, it's, it's comfortable, it's relaxed, it's, you know, nothing's out of place. They haven't learned to be, you know, they haven't gotten into bad habits yet in terms of their posture. Um, that said, you know, the falling asleep is another matter altogether. Yeah, so you want to keep your head up, chin just a little bit uh, down so the spine is extended. So, the, so you're not curved like this, but your spine is fully extended. You may want to just practice with the eyes open. 
which if sleep is an issue, which it sounds like it is, whether you're sitting or um, on a cushion. But you just have to experiment also with finding the right cushion. You might also try kneeling and using a bench for that. It takes a while, you know, to get comfortable and to find the right posture. But, you know, once you've found it, you'll be comfortable for a minute or two, <laughs> you know, and then you won't be. You know, it's just like we were talking about before, you know, so we learn to be with that. You know, it's just going to go back and forth. Um, don't expect miracles. You know. uh, and there is, you know, it does not make you a better meditator to sit on the floor. Uh, it is, for most, for many people, a much more grounding to have all that contact, but it doesn't influence the practice. Okay? I mean, we can talk a little bit more afterwards about that because it's a big subject. Anybody else? Yeah, over here. Thank you for your teaching. The question I have is, it seemed for a while, and now I'm questioning, but it seemed for a while when I was meditating, uh, when I began, uh, perhaps mistakenly, is the goal really to eliminate all thoughts? <laughs> no. Thank you. Good luck with that, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, so that's a common misconception. Thoughts come and go. You have no control over their coming and going. We notice when we're thinking, right, that's different than thoughts. Right, there's an active part of thinking. It's, it's like an internal dialogue, right? But we can't stop that immediately either, right? So the thoughts are going to come and go, and it's, you know, you choose whether to pay attention to those thoughts or not. I probably said this in here before, and I don't know where the hell this fact comes from or if it's even a fact, but we have something like 67,000 thoughts a day. Who counted that? I don't know. But... Um, and many of them, most of them, are the same, or repeated, you know? And we all have our favorites. They keep coming, you know? So it's what the practice is, is learning to change your relationship to those thoughts. Once you change the relationship to the thoughts, the volume gets turned down. And it may get turned down to the point where there are momentarily no thoughts. Great, you know? But then they'll start happening again, and, you know, that's just what the mind does. But if you have a goal of trying not to have thoughts, uh, you're, you're really going to be um, in for a rude awakening, you know, that it's just not going to happen. So let go of that and, and you'll, you'll be in a much better place. Yeah? Just one more? Thanks. One more question? Oh, we're keeping up. Oh, sorry. Well, while he's going there, why don't you ask your question? We'll go for two. How do you change your relationship to your thoughts? Yeah, well, first off, the best way to change your relationship to your thoughts is to recognize that they're not your thoughts. They're thoughts. They're arising due to causes and conditions, which um, you in this present form happen to be, you know, in the middle of. 
right? But the thoughts are happening and, and, and you don't have control over when they're coming or what they are. You know, if I, if I asked you to tell me what your next thought is, you can't do that, right? So that in itself is pointing to the fact that they're not really your thoughts because you have no control over them. They're just thoughts. So the relationship that we're changing is the fact that they're not necessarily, they're not really my thoughts. They're thoughts, okay? We identify with them for sure, <clears throat> but if we recognize that's just a, a way of, uh, the way, a habit of mind, that is, to identify immediately with every thought, once we see that habit and see through that habit, then we just recognize, oh, that's just another thought arising. Maybe I need to pay attention to it, maybe I don't. Um, and, and clearly when we're in sitting practice and the mind is relatively calm and focused on the breath or on the body, thoughts are coming and going and occasionally a, a thought will arise that seems like it's important. And you, know, you sort of examine that and sort of what, what's go, what goes on with that thought? What is actually happening when that thought arises? What's happening in the body? What emotional state arises? Um, is there immediately a question? <laughs> so, uh, technically speaking, you know, a technique for changing one's relationship to thought might for you be just the little mantra, this is not mine, this is not who I am, this does not belong to me. This is not mine, this is not who I am, this does not belong to me. That could be one mantra. The other could just be a question, what is this? Without looking for an answer, just the question. Let the question happen, okay? Through those, that may change the relationship very quickly as well, okay? Does it matter? Whose thoughts are they? You know, does it really matter? If you knew, would that help? Right? So it's like you can ask that question and, and, and see what arises. Okay? One more. Yeah. <clears throat> What's your name? My name is Dean. Dean. Uh, I'm grateful for your attention and for the opportunity to be here. I'm observing the eight precepts today. And I find a lot of resistance coming up around fasting. And I just... Sorry, around what? Uh, fasting, not eating after... Oh, fasting. Noon. You mean fasting after noon? Right. Yeah, okay. Not the whole day. Definitely not okay. the whole day. Um, <clears throat> so I, I was just wondering any advice or uh, perspectives you can help uh, give okay. me on that. So for those of you that are new, generally um, we speak about the five precepts, which have to do with non-harming... Um, uh, not taking what is not given, not stealing, right speech, uh, right a action, and right livelihood. The eight precepts, which uh, uh, pe people occasionally take, uh, it sounds like you're doing it just for the day, maybe, uh, include not eating after noon or, or one, depending on what, whether we're in daylight savings or not, um, uh, not sleeping on a bed higher than I don't know how many, how high that's supposed to be. And uh, that's seven, six, seven, and eight, uh, no dancing, right? Yeah. So that was hard tonight because of all the music next door, right? You sort of, you know. Um, so in terms of not eating, though, I mean, it, that's, it's a great practice, you know? Right? So, you know, we usually eat out of habit. 
not out of necessity. And um, when, you're, when you go on a monastic retreat and you're not eating after one, in a few days you realize how unnecessary it is to really eat after one, you know? You eat a big enough meal for lunch, and then, you know, as long as you're not really, really active, you know, and not burning a lot of calories, you know, that isn't a problem. Now, if you're fast, you know, if you're doing that and burning a lot of calories, then maybe, you know, you need to change your behavior on that day. But otherwise, just notice how it's the habit of wanting to eat versus the necessity for nutrition at that point. And monastics, anyway, Theravada monastics, the early monastics, they, if they're offered, they can eat dark chocolate and ginger and uh, something else. So just a little hint, you know. But, okay. <laughs> okay. So, thanks for your question. Um, I wanted to spend a little time tonight talking about joy and um, also appreciative joy or sympathetic joy. Um, but I wanted to start just by reading this poem. Um, I think this poem has probably been read in here before, uh, but it's a beautiful poem, so I don't think you'll mind. It's, it's by Naomi Shihab Nye called So Much Happiness. It's difficult to know <coughs> what to do with so much happiness. With sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up and something to hold in your hands like a ticket stub or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it and in that way be known. In the loving kindness phrases that we often repeat as the practice of loving kindness. And those of you that are beginners here may have just been introduced to this practice of loving kindness, which is a, one of the four Brahma Viharas, one of the four divine abodes, um, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and empathy. When I do the loving kindness phrases, my last phrase is usually, um, may I or may you um, live with ease and joy ease and joy. So a, f a number of years ago, somebody came up to me after a, a sitting and said, ease and joy. 
that sounds really nice. You know, e- live with ease and joy. You know, what, what, is that li- what does that mean? What is that really like? As we develop our mindfulness, as we really start to pay attention, one of the things we pay attention to are those moments of joy, are those moments of pleasant, are those moments that without question, we don't have to do anything, joy just arises. Those of you that are here that have taken an MBSR class, you know, know that we do this exercise in, this, in week, the second and third week of mindfulness-based stress reduction class. The first week, we ask people to pay attention to pleasant events you know, and what makes it pleasant. And the next week, they pay attention to unpleasant events. And for most people, that is much easier, paying attention to unpleasant events. Yeah? Because we think that the pleasant events have to be really pleasant. They have to be really big, you know. Otherwise, what's so pleasant about it, right? And it's, it's starting to pay attention to those little things that we really start to shift in the way we live. Can we also, you know, find joy, however, when things aren't so pleasant or things are difficult. You know, that's, that's where things really start to change. So I'm just uh, a couple of, had a lot of fun finding quotes for this talk. Um, yeah, the, the Zen, the wonderful Zen teacher, Suzuki Roshi, He said, life is like stepping into a boat which is about to sail out to sea and sink. Life is about to, you know, life is about stepping onto a boat which is about to sail out to sea and sink. Boy, that's really optimistic, isn't it? You know, it's like you get into life and, you know, you know something is going to happen. And that's the first noble truth, right? That life is unsatisfactory. you know, it's unsatisfactory because obviously we don't want it to sink and we spend a huge amount of energy keeping the boat afloat, yeah? We don't actually know, you know, of course, this is a, uh, an image, you know, what will happen if it sinks? I mean, will a whale come and save us or will somebody else come and save us? We don't know, you know, but we're sort of entering that place of uncertainty. Um, so it's, it's starting to, as, as Suzuki Roshi also says, you know, enjoy your problems, enjoy your challenges. You know, can we live from that place? My teacher uh, says basically there are no problems. You know, If you're really practicing, there are no problems. Right? Rilke says what is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. And the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. Right in the difficult, we must have our joys, our happiness, our dreams. There, against the depth of this background, they stand out. There, for the first time, we see how beautiful they are and to learn to deal with it. 
In the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. There, for the first time, we see how beautiful they are. So I know from personal experience that in time, that's exactly what happens. And I'm sure some of you here who have been practicing for a while have had that experience, you know, where the difficult, the challenges of life, suddenly you have a different relationship to it, just like you have a different relationship to your thoughts. Those challenges that arise for us are not the end of the world. And in fact, there's a joy in living with that uncertainty. So the first noble truth is that there is suffering. The second noble truth is that the cause of our suffering, grasping and clinging, wanting things to be different than they are. And the third noble truth is that there's an end of that suffering, that we can actually have moments where there is no grasping or clinging. There is no need, <coughs> need. there is no desire to have things different than they are. And it's not because they're perfect. It's because the relationship we have with them has changed. And in that moment, we have an experience of joy. Joy is also what is referred to as one of the awakening factors. So when we can experience this joy, this joy which has no bounds, that has no condition, we're experiencing a factor of awakening. Yeah, so the, the being who is fully awakened, the being who is fully enlightened, is constantly in this state of joy, which doesn't mean there isn't sadness in his or her life. Yeah? It doesn't mean there are no problems in his or her life. It just means the way that being relates to those problems has changed. Our practice now is to recognize those moments when that happens in us, when we really experience joy with no boundaries. Emily Dickinson wrote, Find ecstasy in life. The mere sense of living is joy enough. Yeah? Just the mere, the fact that we are here and have this body is joy enough. Yeah? Even if our body is racked with pain, you know, can it still be joyful? I mean, it's the pain, it's the difficulties that remind us that we're alive as well. So, you know, when we're sitting formally, when we're like we were earlier tonight, you know, we recognize those moments when we can just be in the body, when nothing, nothing is arising that we want to push away, or rather the desire to push away isn't arising, that we're content with whatever is present. Rumi writes, keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open up a window and look out to see who's there. The joy inside will eventually open up a window and look out to see who's there. So we just sit, you know, and, and are present with whatever is arising. 
we notice those moments when, when oh, there's no, there's no need to change anything. I don't need to move. I can be present. I don't need to scratch. I don't need to judge myself for thinking. Thoughts are arising. Sounds are going back and forth. Sensations are arising. But I'm just here, present. I'm, I'm sitting in presence, sitting in joy. problem is, of course, that as soon as we're there, we want to hold on to it. Yeah? And then it's gone. So we just have to learn not to, to grasp, not to, to hold to that, because that grasping just creates another form of suffering. Trust whatever is arising. So one way of uh, encouraging and cultivating this joy is through the practice of appreciative joy or joy in the good fortune of others. So appreciative joy which in Pali is the word mudita. So there are these four divine abodes, loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. For whatever reason, appreciative joy always seems to get the least amount of attention. And yet, for me, in my experience, it's the one practice that you can do immediately and feel its effect. You know, so if you're sitting there repeating the phrases of loving-kindness as a formal practice, that plants a seed which eventually blossoms and the heart opens. But if you can actually find your way to having appreciative joy for somebody else's good fortune, in that moment something changes and you feel it. How many um, of you have experienced jealousy? Yeah, okay, so think of the amount of energy that is spent being jealous toward whatever. I mean, whether it's some, you know, a material possession that somebody has or a job that somebody got. You know, the amount of, yeah, the amount of energy and the amount of time we, we spend on that is mind-boggling. And yet, if you shifted and said, isn't it wonderful that this person has achieved this, you know? And not, you know, oh, yeah, it's great, you know. <laughs> Glad you got the job that I wanted. So I, there, I, I was reading something by um, a man named... Jonathan, where is it here? Sorry. Jonathan Fields, who's an author and an entrepreneur. He writes, appreciative joy has this wonderful tie-in with the Yiddish word nachas, which, like most Yiddish words, has no really good translation. 
but it's the feeling you get when you see good things happen to someone for whom you wish success in, uh, who, who your wish for success is so pure. You feel their success as your own. There is no jealousy or contempt, no sense of you being on the losing end of the zero-sum game. You genuinely feel like their win is yours. In business, the quest is to cultivate enough of the first two immeasurables, that is the uh, loving kindness and compassion, to be able to experience that sense of appreciative joy or nakas when those around you succeed, even when they accomplish what you have been desperately trying to accomplish without success. Because in accepting that sense of interdependence, you come to a place where you understand their success is yours. But can we replace envy with ecstasy? That's a tough thing to imagine, especially when you see the world around you as competition, which is why you get to make the choice. Are they really your competition or just another part of you? Are you better off racking your brain to figure out ways to beat them? Or would your potential for growth, success, and elevation be greater if you spent the same energy figuring out, figuring out how best to collaborate? Yeah. So this idea of, of appreciative joy in a capitalistic society, right, where you know, the root of capitalism to some extent is the idea that there's a limited amount of resources to go around, right? But if we shift that to assume that there's no, that, that there's enough for everyone if we are careful, you know, and actually work cooperatively, then we can, you know, approach our competition in a more, you know, from a place of appreciative joy, from a place of sympathetic joy. So that translation, appreciation, appreciative joy or sympathetic joy, what I love about sympathetic joy is that it, it's like sympathetic strings on an instrument, sympathetic vibration, so that you're actually vibrating with the other person, right? So the other thing we find out as we practice this is that we lose that, it, it weakens the boundary between self and other, right? Because if your joy is my joy, what's the difference? You know, if, if you succeed and I feel good about your success, that's great. Um, there's no limit to joy, okay? Just because you've succeeded doesn't mean I won't in some other way, right? Um, The Dalai Lama, uh, there's a quote by the Dalai Lama who writes, appreciative joy, uh, sorry, um, it's important to understand how much your own happiness is linked to that of others. There is no individual happiness, totally independent of others. Okay, so as I read that, I'm thinking that kind of contradicts what I was talking about in terms of joy being completely unconditional. Because he's saying, oh, it's, there's no happiness that's totally independent of others. But does it? Does it really? You know? Because if 
the idea is that through appreciating somebody else's happiness, somebody else's joy as your own joy, then there is really no other. You know, yes, in the, in the relative world there are others. There's you and there's me and there's your neighbor, etc. But in the absolute world, there's, you know, it's all connected. So that joy that we feel is, is not conditioned on anything changing, it's just arising. And it's supported by appreciative joy. And appreciative joy in the formal practice is usually done toward others. It's appreciation for the good fortune of others. But it's also the appreciative joy for the joy that's in you and appreciating those moments of good fortune that you experience moment to moment. So I just wanted to experiment a bit. And just like the other, uh, mindful, the other uh, practices for the divine abodes, there are phrases that we use for appreciative joy. The most common being, may your joy and good fortune continue. So I'm wondering, you know, has anybody this week, you know, had something that's happened that's really great for them? You know, a new job, a book being published, a child, a grandchild, an engagement, whatever. Has anybody experienced anything that they'd like to, that they're comfortable sharing? Yeah. You can shout it out. I'll... I'll. Okay. Uh, what's your name? Juliet. Juliet. So Juliet got a raise at her job. So, you know, just now, did anybody lose a job this week? Okay. Sorry. I'm glad nobody lost a job, but in a way, it would have been helpful in the process. But it's, it's good. <laughs> so Juliet got a raise. But we're all just going to. We don't have to do this out loud. But you know, can we appreciate? the good fortune of Juliet, just by internally saying, you know, may your good fortune continue. And just sort of notice what shifts in you as you do that. So remember that these practices, regardless of whether it's loving kindness, compassion, or mudita, or equanimity, these are mindfulness practices, all right? So you repeat the phrase, but you also notice what shifts within you as you express that internally. So may Juliet's joy and good fortune continue. Now this good fortune, it may be material, it may be social, it may be employment, it can also be spiritual of course, right? And if you think about, there's one, uh, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, most of you probably know about Ananda. He, was, he attended the Buddha. His, they were, he was a good friend. He was attending his entire life. He, memor, he had an amazing memory, so he memorized all the teachings. And he was there every time somebody got enlightened. So you read about all these people you know, seeing the Buddha and instantly becoming enlightened. Ananda like, never got enlightened, so they say. You know, he, never, he never achieved enlightenment until after the Buddha died. But he was like there and present, you know, and appreciating every moment that somebody did get enlightened. 
You know, so that's appreciative joy for spiritual good fortune, as it were. You know, and and we may, you know, as we come together to sit, um, we all have you know different levels of experience, and you know, you may be. I always love it when somebody comes and they get and and you know they look out and they they notice that everybody's sitting perfectly still and. Or not everybody, but many people are sitting perfectly still, and they seem to be so happy. Of course, they have no idea what's really going on, but it looks good, you know. But you know, it's and they're jealous, right? They can't do that. So you have that jealousy. But what happens if you say, "Oh, that's wonderful. That that person can sit so still, regardless of what may be going on. That's wonderful," you know. And having appreciative joy for that, what shifts in that moment? You know, you're no longer jealous. You actually have a different consciousness that you're working with. So you've changed the mind at that very moment. Who else has had something really great happen this week? Yeah. What's your name? Uh, my name is Jed. Jed. And I used to come here regularly. Yeah. Welcome back. So let's, uh, you know, that's really nice uh, of you to bring up. So let's just have appreciative joy for a moment for Jed. You know? May Jed's good fortune continue and may he continue to come here and gain from whatever is uh, presented and offered. And now I'll have one more challenging thing, which is, is anybody like really dealing with envy and jealousy right now with, in any circumstance that they're willing to talk about? Oh, come on, really? Wow. Yeah, Bill. Will. Yeah. Towards specific things. Let's just go with one. Professional jealousy. Yeah. Okay. So with professional jealousy, so just bring that person to mind, who you may be jealous of, and you know, see if for that person you can actually bring appreciative joy up. For that person's good fortune, you know, just see how that feels. You know, as you do that, may and name that person. May your good fortune continue. You know, and can you really appreciate that? You know, without falling into the trap. So just notice what shifts. May may that good fortune continue for you. Um, so if you all, you know, I, I really encourage you to, to, when that jealousy and envy arises toward something very specific, someone very specific, to shift it into appreciative joy and just notice what happens. Notice what happens. There's no limit because somebody else has had success. Okay, yes. You know, if somebody else has gotten the job that you really wanted, then that job is not going to be available for you. But that doesn't mean something else may not happen later. And you know, is the job really the source of your joy? That's something else to sort of examine, you know? Yeah. 
Remind me your name. I'm sorry. My name is Rupa. Rupa, yeah. Ah, oh, wonderful. And okay. He's been singing beautifully uh, with the teacher and also practicing. And I just see such a shift in this. Right. Uh, so, so you're having appreciative joy for your husband, and we can have appreciative joy for both of you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, so just these moments of other people's joy. Yeah, Jill, one more. Oh uh, yeah, great. Racing sure. And obsessing over my time. Yeah. So sports, that's an amazing place for it, you know? Now we you know, it's like one thing if you're competing, it's another thing if you're watching, right? So if you're watching you feel that, you know, if you're watching the Olympics and somebody has a big success, you know, we all feel that joy, right? But if you're the one that's in it, you know, and you lose Well, first off, does it do you any good? to have envy for the person that won. You know, we look at that, what's really that feeling, you know, and, what sh and, and all you do is try it, you know. Today was your day, may your good fortune continue until the next race. <laughs> you know, just, just notice what, what, what arises. So, um, yeah, so I, I really encourage you, so, you know, along with loving kindness, this practice can be so powerful in the moment that you use it. In the moment when jealousy or envy arises, or in the moment when you know, somebody you really don't care that much about has some good fortune. You know, really experiment with this and, and see what happens. It's a very transformative practice. So I just want to read one final poem before we close. It's another Rumi poem. A moment of happiness, you and I sitting on the veranda. Apparently two, but one in soul, you and I. We feel the flowing water of life here, you and I, with the garden's beauty and the birds singing. The stars will be watching us, and we will show them what it is to be a thin crescent moon. You and I, unselfed, will be together indifferent to idle speculation, you and I. The parrots of heaven will be cracking sugar as we laugh together, you and I. In one form upon this earth and in another form in a timeless sweet land. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.